Hey there, welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. So you might know that some years back, I helped found what became the largest church near Harvard for a time, which got me into all sorts of interesting conversations. Yes, at Harvard and other universities, but also among other pastors. And a question that came up all the time, and only more so in my later years there, was how to understand where churches were headed, not just where we were, but everywhere. So our church at the time was doing great. We were a model for lots of other churches. But along with everyone else, we saw that the trends weren't great. Books like Robert Putnam and David Campbell's American Grace told us that churchgoing was shrinking in every variety of church. And in a place like Cambridge, we saw that there would need to be some sort of fresh understanding of how churches operated in such an overwhelmingly secular landscape. Again, at the time, we were riding high, but still, where was all this headed? Fast forward to the pandemic and its aftermath. My family, having embarked on a long-term research project along these lines, is now in L.A. We are leading, as regular listeners would know, a number of online contemplative groups with people from all over the U.S. and beyond. But we've started hearing rumblings, which I share, that churches in people's areas are proving more and more to be a tough fit for reasons I'll touch on in a moment. But many people have a wistful hope to join in with other people in person to follow Jesus together, to make local friends in a setting that's at least agreeable. But for those people, of course, by no means for all people, that's proven to be hard to pull off. And again, the trends are against them. So in this episode, part one of two, we'll explore this further, touching on some thoughts from smart people about how we might think about this challenge. I'll bring you in on a snippet of a conversation with a Chicago pastor named Vince Brackett about how one especially influential philosopher named Charles Taylor and his sociologist follower Hartmut Rusa have suggestions for us. Um, I'll throw in some brief experiences of my own, and I'll let you know about something fun that might offer some hope that's kicking off in Los Angeles if you or friends of yours want to drop by and check it out and about a community of practice that might be firing up for people leading similar groups or churches all over the world. You probably guessed I'm excited about this conversation. If you want to learn more about what I and some friends are up to, you can check out journey-on.net, journey-on.net, for a look at what's going on with the contemplative things we mostly talk about here. Or you can check out blueoceanfaith.org for a broader look at the sorts of initiatives we'll be talking about on this episode. All right, let's get rolling with Where Are Churches Headed? Part 1. run across Phyllis Tickle's 2008 book, The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. She takes a big historical swing that maybe you respond to, or maybe you won't, but I can tell you it made an impact on my crowd. She argues that every 500 years, God does something new and different with churches, that old ways falter, and something new needs to be born, and that we're at that 500-year mark right now. You might remember this take on churches from a few years back called The Emergent Church, or sometimes The Emerging Church. And no doubt Tickle's book would have been in that conversation, though my read is that all of that has faded from view just a bit. In any case, 500 years ago or thereabouts was the Reformation, and 500 years before that was the Great Schism where Rome and the Orthodox Church broke from one another. I'd initially guessed that for her 500 years before that, she was going to talk about Constantine making Christianity the state religion of the empire. But then I realized, no, that's not possible. The dates wouldn't work. And it turned out her 500-year change then, if memory serves, revolved around Pope Gregory. In any case, she strongly pitches that all these demographics tell us, as history does, that what church is is due for a major change right now, a new form or some such thing. And I believe that the last conference she spoke at before her death in 2015 was one I organized for Blue Ocean Faith. You'll remember me mentioning its website at the top. And she said she only did that conference because she wondered if we were part of the answer to her question of what this new form of church was. The statistics since then totally agree that a transition is happening. Church attendance and affiliation numbers, as you may know, have in fact fallen off a cliff recently. 
Here are some of the most recent stats from a Pew Research study conducted between 2007 and 2019. The percentage of Americans who identified as Christian in 2007, they tell us, was 78%, almost 80%, pretty good. In 2019, 12 years later, 65%, a 13% drop. That seems pretty steep for 12 years. And what those no longer Christian people were transitioning to, they discovered, wasn't another religion, but was being what the Pew people call religiously unaffiliated. In popular culture, this is called being a nun, meaning somebody would check off none of the above for religions on a box. So in 2007, 16% of Americans, not a huge number, described themselves as being religiously unaffiliated, 16% in 2007. In 2019, 26% did. So doing the math in my head, a 60% rise in 12 years. You'll note that the last year of their report, 2019, came just before the pandemic. Surely that must have been a factor in the numbers they're talking about as time has progressed since, and almost certainly not in a good way. So as I hunt for statistics post-pandemic, while they're hard to come by as yet, what I'm told is that as churches reopened, their regulars mostly did in fact return in pretty robust numbers. Who didn't return almost at all was their fringe, which in most churches comprises about 30% of attendees on a given week. So that suggests that since the last Pew report in 2019, things have worsened, maybe by quite a bit. Let me take a moment to back up and say that when churches work for you or for me, they're terrific. I, I largely so enjoyed the church I led for 18 years. I made so many friends. I learned so much. I found new ways to connect with God. I had plenty of chances to try out faith choices just in the larger world. It was great which perhaps only emphasizes the conundrum that so many people I talk with feel. For instance, I was talking recently with a friend who leads a network of Christian groups. He might actually be a part of this community of practice that I mentioned up top, and I'll tell you more about shortly. And he was saying that in his collection of folks who do want friends and community around Jesus, lots of them aren't sure that they, for instance, are excited to hear even a good sermon. Somehow the endeavor itself, not just the quality or lack thereof of the endeavor, has become challenging for them. That's interesting. One provocative perspective about why that might be so comes from this Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, who back in 2007 published a long and influential book called A Secular Age, which offers some thoughts about that world and about churches. And they might explain why, say, the folks in my friends group might not want to hear even the best sermon, despite being eager to follow Jesus with other people. Our next pop, uh, The Pocket Contemplative episode is going to be an interview with Chicago pastor Vince Brackett about what Taylor and his German sociologist disciple Hartmut Rosa have to teach us. If you want to be sure you don't miss that episode, you might want to consider subscribing to this podcast, The Pocket Contemplative, and that way, of course, you won't miss it. So again, that's going to be part two of this episode, and it'll be a longer, it'll be more in-depth. This is kind of a brief overview of just the state of play. Here's a snippet, for instance, of what you'll hear there to give you a taste of the sorts of insights many people are finding helpful. The context for this snippet um, is that I open by summarizing Taylor's and Rosa's big point, at least as Vince and I have talked about it, maybe simplistically, as being something like that the big story of the world we live in today is that it pressures all of us to be busy and burned out all the time. It tells us we could absolutely be happy and successful, and our churches could be happy and successful if we or they only had more resources. So we always are resource poor. We always need more. And so we work and work and work to get more of these resources, and we judge ourselves when we don't pull it off. Here's Vince jumping off on that point. Um, it's, we, we always are experiencing that there's not enough time. Um, and so there, there are plenty of ways that we, you know, like we, we could talk about um, the 
the the acceleration of uh, uh, something like social decay, which is like how fast things go in and out of style. That is that is not just you know happening faster than ever; it's accelerating. And so, like, there's this quote from um, uh, Steve Carell, who played Michael Scott in The Office, and he was asked like three or four years after The Office ended, like, "Hey, so are you ready for a reboot of The Office?" And he said, "No, I don't think Michael Scott's jokes would work today because everything had changed so fast. Just three years after the show had ended, and I, you know, like that—that's an example of like the the acceleration of of life in 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 our world. Uh, or there's the classic email paradox of like email allows us to send uh send uh communication so much faster so communication should take up less of our life right no of course email just takes up more of our life even though we can do it faster that doesn't mean that we do it less it means that we do it more and uh and so that being this this uh this this background uh, acceleration that's constantly going, that's encouraging us go faster, go faster, do more, be better, be bigger. Uh, it it uh, it it uh, it makes everything about this imminent life. Um, so, let me rephrase this. It when when we have all of these pressures to do more, do it faster, do it better, the like nothing can scream loud enough to like break down all of those demands. And so our, our, our lives literally become going from demand to demand to demand. And we cannot even imagine getting out of that, uh, that rat race or that hamster wheel or, you know, the treadmill, whatever, you know, fill in your favorite uh, image. And that, it, that speaks to why it's so difficult for transcendence to break in, because there's just all of these imminent demands right in front of us yelling really loudly. And so we, you know, like we can't even slow down long enough to even consider transcendence, let alone it smack us in the face. So I'm going to go back to your um, kind of warm hearted comment, beginning these remarks of Dave, you can't imagine how hard it is to be a pastor in, in these, you know, in these times. So, because what I'm tempted to ask about that is, is what Rosa and Taylor is saying super smart, super observant, super insightful, and super depressing? Um, mm. I, I can wonder, right? Because it, it, let's say you, you, you're you helped, you, you read it entirely sympathetically, or you hear lectures on it, or hear podcasts like this, and think, wow, that is really insight. That does describe something. But is it a hamster wheel that it's impossible to get off of? because it's the sea in which we're swimming, which is why it would be so hard to be a pastor, say. Um, or, no, no, that's uh, that's a little gloomier than we probably want to take it. That um, having, with the, the power of, of these perspectives is there's another way. Um, and so you talked about how one other way is you can talk to people in your church or outside of your church about, you know, evocative things that can kind of call out their yearnings, et cetera. Is that just the answer? Is let's all be evocative people talking to people about their yearnings, and then we're we're out of the hamster wheel. We don't need to be caught by this vice grip of, you know, I've just got to have more resources and do it all more and better. I'm outside of that. What's the hope? I mean, what what should anybody do? I mean, what's what's the picture of the good thing? Yeah, I I mean I I do think that there there is a degree of like sober uh, truth to this um, that I don't think. I don't think we can just like explain away with like, and here's the, 
here's the almost like if we if we were if we were describing things this way and then we offered like here's the tonic you know that will cure all of this we'd be feeding right into the logic of acceleration of like you know like here well, it's, well, we've identified the problem and here's the resources that will that will pull you out of that um so there is a degree of like sober reality here and i do, and i do think a big part of this that um that speaks to me in terms of what is my job as a minister what is my job to be helpful to people spiritually who um maybe if i'm identifying these things or helping people you know put a put a finger on some of this stuff in their life um this part part of uh, i think the the helpfulness that can be offered is just a if somebody when i recognize or when i speak out loud for people whether in like a sermon or just like meeting with somebody about the inability to opt out of this stuff because it is so atmospheric and all around us i see people light up not necessarily because i solved their problem but just because they don't feel alone and so this this idea that um uh, you, you mentioned burnout as being like a big takeaway that you get just kind of moving through all of this content from these two theorists I think a big thing for me is recognizing that burnout is not an individual problem. It's a societal problem. And so when we when we when we identify that for people and talk about how it is so difficult, it's it's maybe impossible for you to opt out of this because it is the water that you swim in, then what happens is there is less guilt and shame and burden on people that they have to sift through it themselves because that's another part of this this whole ball of you know what 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 Taylor and Rose are describing about modern life is that it is incredibly individualistic it is it, it, it's sort of the what we're uh, what we've wrought uh, going from more communitarian societies to more individualistic societies a big part of it is is this reality that they describe uh Taylor uses the term the ethics of authenticity and and he describes it like no no human being um should ever tell another human being how to live their life you know this sort of like pinnacle of individualism every human has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human um and the therefore the the authority is the self and and when Taylor talks about this like uh, as i mentioned before he is not he is neither boosting it nor knocking it. He's not. He's not condescending it. He's not saying that this is something that we got from um, hedonism or you know from celebrity culture or something. He he's not saying it's a loss of moral vision. It is. It is a. a it's a new moral vision. It's just a different moral vision than than maybe traditional civic values in America. Um, and I think when people are walked through that reality not in a condescending way but accepts you know that that like oh yeah that is the world i live in and there are great things about that there are wonderful things about being an individualistic society if we wanted to like go into a foray talking about justice like lots of justice movements don't happen without without this reality where people who you know have been told that they have to take on the status quo refuse to and 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 forge their own way so there's wonderful things about this but also there's a hell of a lot of pressure and and uh and like the idea that like i have to make meaning for myself because the institutions that once did that for human beings like churches or religions or even nations no longer do that for me because i don't feel patriotic i see problematic things all over religion and so what do i do how do i make meaning well i guess i just make it for myself yeah i'm gonna make it for myself and then like five years into that effort you're like oh jesus i have to make it for myself this is impossible and so i think that the like the the encouragement or the um what's the what's the like the 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 balm that i'm giving for the wound is like that pressure is not yours to carry these are these are things that are true about 
uh, that that the world has made true about us. It's not something that you have done wrong to put yourself in this position of feeling so exhausted and burnt out all the time. And like you have to make meaning for yourself. Again, make sure you don't miss the next episode if you're interested in this stuff. My full conversation with Vince is going to be there. But for now, let's go back for a little bit more on how the landscape of how churches function has changed since my early pastoring days in Cambridge. So I was part of an evangelical denomination then. And evangelicalism still fought ascendant in the late 90s, even though Putnam and Campbell tell us that, alas, the trends had already turned against even evangelical church participation by the early 90s. But that cockiness that we felt then is no more, because of course evangelicalism got so tied to the political far right, which again, we're still waiting on hard numbers post-pandemic, appears to have torpedoed evangelicalism's numbers. Back in that earlier era, evangelicals strongly believed that whatever the numbers might tell us, there was always terrific hope of any given congregation exploding in growth because there were always models of other super successful churches to look to who were going to teach us all what's what and how to grow like crazy. Briefly, we in Cambridge were one of those churches. and um, But again, Taylor and Rosa would say that that hope that the super successful church is going to teach you what's what, it's all going to work great, that hope fed in to the fallacy that the only thing keeping us from growth and happiness were resources, right? That's what those successful churches were going to provide us. And it's a fallacy that makes everyone a hamster on a wheel, perpetually judging ourselves for not, in fact, getting more resources. Why, when we try to do what they do, doesn't it work so well? I'll try harder. And that puts most of us on a pathway to burnout, at least most of us church people. But they would say it's the, it's the water we swim in just as people in our lives as well. And what that hopeful view of the time back in that day ignored was the role of luck and context. I think, in, at least in my evangelical circles then, saying, I don't know, maybe those good churches, and maybe we, we were one of those churches, just got lucky, seemed like, how dare you? You know, you, you, you know what's what. That's, it wasn't just luck. But I think a lot of it was just luck. It was clear to me even then that as booming as our own church was, if you moved us one town over in any direction, we would have gotten no traction at all. Now, of course, we did a lot of things that worked, but a backdrop to all of it, I think, was the luck of the draw. As we talk to folks who yearn for following Jesus among friends in an agreeable setting, we learn and we've lived out what turned out to be another fallacy, that if you leave one such setting because you move or whatever, you should just find a so-called good church in that new place and all will be well. I've now, for instance, talked to many dozens of people who moved from Cambridge with that fallacy in mind who never found anything. And when my family moved to Los Angeles on this research project, we got an interesting and bracing view of differing silos of churches. The evangelical churches we visited were often angering to me for reasons that you might now be able to guess, but this was pre-2016. But even then, the sermons would often have a political edge or a contempt towards our secular neighbors, or what I experience as a belabored emphasis on how sinful you and I might be. So we could try mainline churches. The mainline churches almost never had that problem, but they often seemed inoffensive to the point of being dull. We have an impressive local Catholic congregation with the only downside being that to do anything with the church or even to take communion, we'd have to convert to Catholicism. Now, again, this is not every church, but this were, these were trends that we saw. And to reiterate, when a church works, it's the most delightful thing ever. It's a source of the rich community that all human beings certainly need. It comforts us about our lives because it encourages us that we're trusting a trustworthy God and who doesn't need that? And the town around us is glad that it's there because so many good things radiate out of it. It's the best. So I bring up the challenges only to emphasize what the numbers tell us and what my many conversations tell me and what Tickle and Taylor and Rosa started trying to describe to us a couple decades back. 
So then what might some options be for those? I don't know if this is a small number or a large number, but it might include like you who like me and many of my friends would love to find an agreeable place to follow Jesus alongside people who will, we hope, become great friends. To explore this question, I put out a call to people on an email list who follow me and who follow Blue Ocean Faith to join me for some online conversations about this where we could hash it out together. You, by the way, can yourself join that list if you'd like by going to blueoceanfaith.org, blueoceanfaith.org, clicking on the connect tab and then clicking on join the list once you've clicked the connect tab. So you've got to find join the list. It's not quite bright there, but it's there. And then it'll give you a form to fill out. So again, blueoceanfaith.org, click on connect, then click on join the list, fill out the form, you're on the list. So one thing that quickly came out was that there was interest in what I'm told education leaders uh, that came out of these conversations that I was having online with people from this list is that people had interest in what education leaders call a community of practice. In this case, that would likely be an online ongoing conversation among practitioners from all over the world who are trying to lead these fresh sorts of groups or churches. In principle, along with supporting one another and having friends in this journey, everyone could learn from everyone else. That sounds pretty great. So, and I don't know the frequency, obviously we're just getting this started, but if participating in such a thing as someone leading a group or church interests you, email us at mail, M-A-I-L, mail at blueoceanfaith.org, and we'll be in touch should such a thing get going, which I think is quite likely that it will. I think, I don't know, but my guess is that we would have some common agreements together, which I can let you know more about at that time, because obviously there's got to be a reason we're talking to one another. Uh, but if you want to get moving now, I would think you could do worse than reading or reviewing my short book called Blue Ocean Faith, which describes some commitments that might at least kind of start the conversation for us and help us stay together in this community practice. So there you go. But then we've also talked about what it might look like to launch a pilot group in Westside Los Angeles with my wife and me to explore one model. Obviously, context is everything again. I've said that so far in this podcast, so clearly this would not be the model for anything. One model for a group or perhaps a church in this spirit. I think we'd be dreaming of something fun and, of course, Christian and multi-generational and inclusive with the kind of spiritual richness we explore on this podcast while also being, God willing, accessible to anyone. And, of course, for it to meet the hope we talked of up front of being a place where anyone could hope to make friends as they follow Jesus in a delightful setting. So for that pilot group in Westside Los Angeles, we'll be having informational gathering in the next few weeks. So if you're in the area and would like to check it out, again, email us at mail at blueoceanfaith.org and we'll get you the info. But can I encourage you also to take a moment to reflect on whether you have friends in the LA area who might be encouraged by something like this? If so, by all means, have them get in touch with us. All right, that's it for this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. Join us next time again for part two, uh, kind of a longer, more in-depth philosophical conversation about where our church is headed. And again, that's where you're going to hear all of my conversation with Vince Brackett about the thinking of Charles Taylor and Hartmont Rosa. Talk to you soon. 